Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Tucker. It is about to be May 12th, 2019. This is episode number 19. Uh, and so I'm going to do a couple things differently tonight. Uh, this might end up being kind of a short episode uh, and do something a little unusual, which is actually realizing responding to a number of questions that have to do with writing, writing process, uh I guess in a way, kind of things we've been looking at or looking for when it comes to the journal Wild Resistance, used to be called Black and Green Review. Um, so I'm going to go through a couple of those things and go through a bit of my own writing process and some of my thoughts on writing. So it is considerably different than my normal ranting and raving and things like that. Uh, if you have no interest in it, then you can go ahead and skip this episode and the next one or next many after that I'm sure we'll be dealing with much different things and not me talking about my work and how I do it and the kinds of things I look for as an editor um, before I get into that though uh, I've had some interviews go up recently uh, in fact I, I have to remember to do podcasts myself because I keep my setup going for uh, interviews and then I totally forget that I haven't recorded an episode. Uh, for members, who is also on the Channel Zero podcast network, which this podcast is on as well, I uh, had a recent interview going up with them, Last Born in the Wilderness, and then Adventures Through the Mind. Uh, the Adventures Through the Mind one was intense. That's a, that's a big interview. Um, of all of them, you know, I think that that's, that's really one to look at. All these deal with cola personality. Uh, and deal with the contents and the, and the reality and ayahuasca and colonialism and all these things. That's primarily the subject for all these. I've got more interviews in the works. Uh, I'm losing track of how many. Uh, and there's also a big interview that's going to come out, a print interview uh, with the Icarus Journal from, the, from Indonesia. Uh, and also... I have to, to mention as well, some of the, the folks I've been talking to from Indonesia are fucking amazing people. Uh, as far as anarchism goes, as far as anarchists go, it's pretty easy to get burnt out often um, on dealing with a, a lot of people within the anarchist scene. And it can be very insular, it can be very uh, dogmatic, it can be very just gossipy and shit-talking. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I don't talk about anarchism a whole lot on the podcast or right? I don't talk about the anarchist scene or regard anarchist commentary in a lot of ways uh, aside from you know my own or aside from what we're talking about in the journal primal, primal anarchy in general uh, is just because anarchism in a lot of ways especially in America is just really just kind of a shit heap uh, and reflects a lot of the issues that are going on in society in large as far as the negative side effects that social media and YouTube, Facebook, all that stuff can have. And I'm just not really interested in engaging it. If what ends up happening is that you get in these conversations or you see these conversations or you, you see all this stuff going on and you can totally forget that there are stakes at hand. And I, I think a lot of the stuff, particularly a lot of what happens on Facebook, really kind of happens in this, this echo chamber and this kind of shell that doesn't demand engagement with the real world and they can be reposting things they can be talking about things they can be trying to find 
different ways of owning the misery of, of reality as, as it is right now, reality in the face of civilization collapsing, and own none of the consequences for it and pretend like these things are all non inconsequential. Pretend like the talk of resistance or the talk of rewilding, the talk of uh, even solidarity and support with other struggles, uh, you know, as if the talk itself is doing its own thing and, and totally disregard that reality is at stake. And there's there's so many other parts of the world and so many other places and circles where, you know, it's clear that that isn't ever going to happen. Uh, and that just, it's a different, it's entirely different kind of uh, reality or di- entirely different dynamic with reality that all these other people live with and have to deal with and are responding to. And it's it's crazy how absent that can be within particularly the American uh, and even European anarchist scenes. Uh, so some of the people I've been talking to in Indonesia and doing these interviews with and seeing the translation and seeing a lot more about the thought process and about how the arguments have developed and how they take on a different kind of life um, in these different contexts, it is really, really something. I mean, it is really, really inspiring to me, and I kind of feel like all of a sudden I just kind of take my hat off to him. Um, and, and knowing that we're the kind of discussions that we're having in Wild Resistance and uh, in the journal and things like that, they're, they're translating this stuff super fast. They're translating this stuff and getting it out very quickly and having these kinds of discussions, but it's just like, you know, all the other bullshit that comes along with what, what we've seen within the, the Western anarchist world is just not a part of it. So it's really inspiring to me. So I, I, one of the things I want to mention is that uh, in Bandang, uh, the May Day riots, there was over 600 anarchists that were arrested. Uh, 200 of them were stripped and shaved and reportedly tortured. I think there's just a handful of people left in prison, but all across Indonesia with the current election, with all the insanity that's going on there, anarchists have been fucking shit up and they have been right there front and center. So pay attention. Uh, pay attention to what's happening there and what's going on with everybody and see ways that you can help out. Uh, Western dollars kind of go a very long way when and if they're needed. Um, so i hopefully have more about that. There definitely will be more in the upcoming issue and hopefully future issues of Wild Resistance. Uh, probably more talk on the podcast as well. But I'm excited for that interview to come out, and I'm also just really thrilled to have had interactions and have had anything to do with this, this group of people uh, and seeing just, a, just getting a glimpse about the state of resistance in Indonesia is really, really inspiring and really, really awesome. But do pay attention. Do check out what was going on in, in the May Day riots and everything like that. And if there are ways to help, ways to support them, jump on it. Uh, so, yeah, I'll have more about that soon. Uh, but other interviews, yeah, I'll just, be, I'll just be posting them up and I'll do my best to remind myself that I need to do the podcast and not just other people's interviews. Um, I've been posting some writing on Medium as well. Uh, there's a post I just did the other day, Jared Diamond, who if you've listened to the uh, the three-parter episode about book recommendations, you'll know. I don't think highly of Jared Diamond. In fact, increasingly, I think he's worse and worse of a person. And by the time he's got to this newest book, 
and particularly his last book. Um, his newest one is Upheaval. The last one was The World Until Yesterday. Uh, and they're just awful. The stuff he's doing is pathetic. Uh, the newest book is talking about how nations can face crisis uh, as individuals would for better or for worse, but his whole idea and the whole way that he's articulated things since Collapse, which came out, I think, 2005, has been about trying to own this narrative that he put out in Guns, Drums, and Steel, which came out in 1997, and then uh, showing about how societies collapse and then trying to kind of turn this into this just ridiculous hubris into saying, well, this is how we're so smart that we're going to get ourselves out of this mess, and just this ridiculous historical reality about how to get out of that. And I mean, he's, he's flagrantly anti-egalitarian. Bill Gates had a quote on the back of Guns, Drums, and Steel. Steven Pinker has a quote on the cover of Upheaval. So he's going downhill very rapidly uh, towards this ridiculous position. But uh, ultimately, where the book ends is talking about the importance of a strong national identity in face of crisis. Uh, so he's, I don't know, liberal delusionism at its best. I guess it is worse. I don't, I don't even know how you would distinguish that. But uh, I do have a piece about Diamond. It's called Diamond in the Rough. If you look that up, you'll find it. But it's uh, medium.com backslash at Fairledge. That's F-E-R-A-L-E-D-G-E. That's F-E-R-A-L-E-D-G-E at Medium. Uh, so I've got those. I've got a couple other pieces that I've posted up there. Some from Black and Green Review. Uh, and there's one that I posted up a week ago or so. Uh, it's called San Cauri Almanac. Uh, I had originally written that piece as a follow-up to the interview with Nora Gagadas in Black and Green Review number five, um, just kind of field-testing some of the numbers she had as far as the importance of dietary fat in the, for humans. Um, I ended up really expanding that uh, and really just taking it and making a standalone thing and making its own argument. Uh, so that's up there as well. I encourage people to check those out. And of course, since I'm going to be talking about writing, I'll say that if you have not read my writing, that is my main thing. Podcasts are predominantly me just ranting. So if you're new to all this stuff, if you're new to all that, my biggest recommendation when it comes to any of my work is always going to be my writing first. Uh, and then... I don't know. You can tell me where you think the podcast fits in. Um, so for those who are not aware, I have written three books. The first one was called For Wildness and Anarchy. came out in 2010. Gathered Remains uh, is a collection of essays that came out in 2018. The Cull of Personality came out in 2019. Uh, I've got a number of other books in the process, but I am... Just to, just to give you an idea, if you don't know, I was the founding editor, author of, uh, primary author of uh, Species Trader Journal from 2000 to 2005. I was a uh, heavy contributor to Green Anarchy, which was 2000 to 2008. Uh, I've taken part in a number of different journals over time, but the most obvious one here is going to be Black and Green Review, which we started in 2015. I'm the founding co-editor, as you'd say, uh, and it was Black and Green Review up till issue five, at which point we changed the name to Wild Resistance, a journal of primal anarchy. If you're curious about the journal, it's it's not 
a magazine at all. I mean, it's a book format. It's a book in, in every, really in every regard. It's broken down into four sections. There's an introduction uh, or an op-ed, and then there is an essay section, a four discussion section, field notes from the Primal War, and then reviews. So field notes for the Primal War is just kind of like uh, taking a look at, at various forms of resistance and various, both historical and present and future, uh, and really trying to articulate the idea of how we how we attain praxis. How do we take these ideas and, and make something of it? How have other people done it? And how do all these things tie in? Uh, the four discussion is the section that's the most kind of open-ended. So, you know, it's it's the place where if you have a thought, if you have an idea about how the direction to take things in or an idea about the critiques that may be more open-ended, uh, that's the place to put it. Then quite often, you know, there will be two, three, or four pieces back-to-back between editors just about discussions that we've had because there's a lot of discussions that go on. There's a lot of work that goes on in the background with the journal uh, pretty extensively. And in the last issue, number six, I think we had four pieces uh, total between editors on the idea of philosophy. Um, pretty much just pro and con, not, not really a lot of drawn out stuff about philosophy itself, fortunately. I'm not a fan of it. As if you've listened to the podcast, you'll be familiar. Um, and then essays, pretty straightforward. Essays, self-contained pieces that present an idea and deliver it. Uh, and then reviews, but our reviews aren't just going to be, you know, we never take stuff that's just like, hey, you should read this book. It's great. Take the critical ideas of the book and engage them, pros and cons, uh, and sometimes the application. There's times where we've had reviews that have been very extensive and storyteller in particular has had a couple in there. I think the last one was, uh, maybe, I don't know, 20 something pages. Uh, just, just really good engagement of, uh, of a book and talking about technology, talking about the grid and that'll continue to be a thing. So there's, there's different kinds of aspects of the journal, but all this is really just kind of give an idea about what it is we're doing. And one of the main reasons I'm getting to this episode is that I get, a lot of questions about I'm realizing actually more as I'm going through this I do get a lot of questions about writing and how I approach writing but also to give people a little more insight as to some of the things I'm looking for or some of the things that uh, are going to make it easier to get writing through into the journal uh, we do get a number of contributions uh, and we do get a number that don't make it and there's a lot to as far as our editorial process goes, where we're engaging not only just um, style and in terms of like technical edits and things like that, but we kind of run a gauntlet amongst ourselves as far as fact-checking, as far as presenting arguments, as far as developing an argument and things like that. Uh, and nobody gets a, a free pass, really, is what it comes down to. And I know people write me quite often and it's, it's a good question. It's a solid question. It's like, you know, what would you like to see? What should I write about? This is what I'm writing about. Should I go ahead and present this? Kind of like a thesis, an idea, and they're like, would you take this? Nothing has ever been just taken, not, not from John or not from myself even, um, as far as just being presented with something and saying, like, I like what you're talking about. It's going to be great. Just send it in and we'll run it. Uh, everything's got to be good. There's great concepts out there that people have done an excellent job exploring and then put zero thought into the presentation 
and it was awful and unreadable. Uh, so we don't want to have that. Um, we do have a pretty high standard as far as things go. Uh, certainly as far as a lot of the other journals and everything I've been involved with are written for, um, you know, I mean, it can be kind of intense. So a part of this is me responding to some of that stuff and me giving a little bit of an idea of what I'm looking for uh, and what I'm going through and also kind of the expectation what you can expect when we're going through this and then kind of why I'm doing all this. So one of the biggest things to get out of the way first off, and that is that there are a lot of different styles of writing. Uh, and the kind of writing I do may not appeal to certain people and it'll appeal to others. And there's a lot of people who have different ideas about what it is they want to do or how it is they want to articulate something. Uh, so the advice that I have and the way that I approach things isn't at all me saying this is how you have to do it. I'm just saying this is how I do it. Uh, and if you're familiar with my writing, then you'll have a better idea of what that looks like. Um, so, I mean, that said, you know, I'm not looking for, in fact, I'm, I'm definitely not looking for other people or things that are contributing to the journal that are my style or are the, the kind of take that I, I would necessarily do myself. It's not really as important to me as finding people who have a vision and a voice and have articulated it. That's really what it comes down to. So for whatever style you're doing, uh, that's that's going to be important. There's some things that apply pretty universally when it comes to writing and what makes something writable, or I'm sorry, readable or, or not. Uh, and there's there's a lot of things that you know I'll, I'll very regularly see, and I will have to go ahead and if if, if something if I'm interested in something and I see there's a vision and there's a voice in there, if it's something that's going to take a lot of work and the person who's sending it knows that I'm going to do this, I'll just say, let me just take a heavy hand to this and then walk through the process. And um, that that can take a number of forms and it can also be really kind of hard to take. Uh, and I don't just say this as somebody who who thinks that I've like found some kind of thing here. I mean, it's, it's really awkward for me to be talking about this stuff in general anyways. Not, not personally, but just like opening up and just talking about it in, in the podcast, which is why I even preface it by saying if you're not interested in my writing, if you're not interested in my writing process or anything about writing itself or my thoughts on it, just don't listen to this episode. It's not going to mean anything to you. Uh, and also realizing it's like, you know, it's, it's something that I've had varying takes on various ideas about and they're they're kind of constantly shifting and I've been increasingly coming to terms with a number of aspects about it I mean for one thing it's just kind of ridiculous to say but I didn't consider myself a writer until after my second book came out um, which is which is weird uh, in its own ways but you know I mean it's just kind of like the way that I had done it for me writing had been kind of a utilitarian thing as a as an activist as an anarchist as somebody who'd been involved in these struggles you know, the writing itself was more of this thing that you have to do. And I'm in, in many ways, regardless of how you, you put it, writing can be kind of a sadistic compulsion. Um, and I just feel like the sense that it's like, this is something that I have to do. Uh, and that's how I see it. And that's how I approach it. Um, but that means that there's a lot of different kind of like quirks about the way that I have approached it. Uh, and things that I've done that, you know, looking back on, I would have done differently or 
just kind of like an evolving sense of, of what it means to be a writer. Uh, and I think about this stuff a lot. There's never a point at which this stuff gets innately easier. Uh, you get better through practice. Uh, and I can tell you now, I've been a lot, a lot of the thoughts I've had about this go back to the fact that I'm re-editing for Wildness and Anarchy and working on the second edition, which should be heading to the, or should be printed ready, I should say, fairly soon, potentially within a month here. Uh, there's stuff in this book from when I was 20, and it goes from 2000, 2010. Um, and there's some of the stuff in there that's like the earliest stuff. It was raw. Uh, and there's, there's aspects of that that work 20 years later, and there's aspects of that that don't work. So there's been some changes. There's been some stuff I pulled out. There's been some stuff I've, I've edited pretty heavily. And I'm looking at a lot of this stuff, not so much in the sense of like, you know, what's the worst kind of contribution that I get to the journal, but more like looking at my own stuff and being, I, I'm very hard on myself uh, about it and very hard on myself about how I do things. And it, and it kind of stirs the pot a lot in terms of when I'm looking at it for wildness and anarchy, because there's a lot of stuff in the book I really like, and there's some stuff in there that I just am white knuckling it through. Uh, and, and some of this stuff got pulled. Uh, and some of the stuff just got very heavily reworked. Um, so there's this kind of also notes to a younger self uh, because I do approach things differently now. The way that I write, you know, around, I'd say around 2005, 2006 is where I would say that I, I had really kind of picked up both my vision and my voice, the way I present my work, uh, and the way even I build an argument and things like that. And it's all, that's that's really where it starts to kind of solidify and then, you know, even things about pacing, they get different. So as I go from writing uh, essays that are a couple thousand words to there's two essays in Gathered Remains, Hooked on a Feeling, and uh, Society Without Strangers, those, those are both 27,000 word essays. So I know thinking in word counts doesn't mean a lot to many people, uh, but just to give an idea, within, um, within Gathered Remains and within the journal, both those essays ended up being about, like, 80 or 90 pages. Uh, so very long for an essay, uh, any way you cut it. But then even going to something like Cole, uh, you know, just the way that you present things, if you're going to use a larger format or you're accepting a larger format than an essay, is going to be innately different and change the way that you're, you're thinking about things and writing things. Uh, so as I'm working on Of Gods and Country, which is my main book that I've been working on for a couple of years now, uh, there's a book about missionaries as a as a agent of colon, or colonialism and colonization uh, and the history of religion like a book like that covers a lot of ground and takes a lot of thought and a lot of ideas as far as the pacing goes and everything like that so as there's aspects that get easier about writing in time come up there's new challenges that present themselves uh, so presenting more facts, presenting a larger argument, articulating a larger argument, or articulating as a, increasingly been leaning words towards increasing, or I'm sorry, but like focusing on a really complex argument or just really embracing complexity becomes a different way to approach it. So you're kind of always having to think about this stuff. And I, I'm sure that there's probably writers out there that would laugh at that kind of idea, but I haven't met any of them yet. Um, everybody I know or everybody I've talked to about this stuff and I've increasingly been talking to more and more people about it and about the writing process just because this is interesting to me uh, as a writer and as, as a reader 
Um, I, I don't know if a lot of people really get to a point where they're just just pumping stuff out and it just gets easier and easier. There's just no way to to take shortcuts. Uh, if you're doing stuff that is really meticulously researched, I mean, there's there's no way to shortcut that research process unless you have other people who are helping you or unless you have ghostwriters, which I'm increasingly realizing as well is a common thing. Uh, a lot of a lot of bigger names or a lot of even kind of medium level names. There's a lot of ghostwriting going on in that stuff, which was just surprising to me. And it's also weird to me. And I know some people who do ghostwriting and I have nothing against them or anything like that, but it's kind of implausible to me to think about putting my name on somebody else's work. Uh, that's just batshit crazy to me. But I mean, we see it all the time. And I mean, anytime you see these politicians that are dumbing out books left and right, and obviously you see it with Trump, you see it with all these corporate heads and things like that. They they don't do shit. They have nothing to do with the books, or or very little at best. Um, but for the most part, it's just like a, a whole industry that relies around, uh, you know, whose name is going to be on the cover and the entire cult of personality that follows around all these people means that nobody's going to second guess when they're reading these books that they came from that person. It takes a lot of work to write a book, so you know if you've got these crazy jobs and you're constantly doing this stuff is like some yuppie socialite or something like that, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're going to sit down and write 10,000 words a night like it was nothing. Uh, and I say that as somebody who can write very fast. So, you know, I can I can get a lot down when, I'm, when I've got things lined up really well. But still, I mean, doing this work takes a lot of time. So a question I get, and I'm going to kind of work through this in a weird way here, but a question I get is people saying, what should I do? Uh, which is a very logical I kind of question to ask when you're presented with this critique or a critique of civilization in the first place or for the first time, you know, if it really resonates with you. You know, it's not just like some normal liberal or leftist kind of activist stuff where you can say it's like, well, the immediate thing you can do is you can sign these campaigns, you can join these petitions. Uh, you know, however you want to get art involved with those kinds of groups there's a pretty clear path forward. And when we're talking about the critique of civilization, that, that path isn't there at, at all. Um, there's a number of people who are doing a lot of things, but there's a lot of critique that's going on and a lot of critique. When you get down to domestication, you're getting down to kind of a very fine level. So it can be very overwhelming. And I get this kind of reaction that people get. It's like, well, what do I do? Uh, but there's also aspects of it that, you know, that the part where we tell you what to do is intentionally left blank. Uh, that, that's been the idea from the start, and that's something that goes back uh, within anarchism. That's something that goes back within green anarchist critiques or within the ultra-left, and, and various ideas, Kamat and Perlman. Uh, these people have been very influential on the direction that anarcho-primism, primal anarchy, or anti-civilization anarchism would be going had really laid that path out well. And a lot of us came through the left, came through red anarchism, and had seen the the way that platforms had worked and the ways that ideologies had worked up front and in person and just really not drawn to it. And in this particular era, that takes on a whole new kind of relevance because in the age of social media, we have this total guru complex that's just massive. Uh, 
And now things have gotten so so stupid, so insanely idiotic that people were being drawn in by memes and basing the argument and entire worldview on fucking memes. And it's it drives me crazy. It's totally insane and it makes no sense to me at all. But I mean that's how you get this rise of these really kind of cartoonish characters and you get communism and socialism get a new life that is completely ahistorical. Uh, and then Sterner and Kaczynski become these really iconic, uh, I guess, edgy, uh, it's, I guess, just icons. I mean, there's, it's not like people, people are talking about, like, you know, they'll put a meme saying, read Industrial Society in its Future, but saying read Industrial Society in its Future seems to be as much of the content as, as any of these people are willing to get into. Uh, and it, it just comes down to being edgy and being pushy and trying to present this image and latching onto these these icons as though that is that's kind of like an identifier. So we've reached a kind of crazy level of stupid um, where the content is just totally gone and it makes it a lot harder to talk about writing because apparently a lot of people aren't even looking at writing anymore. They might read a headline. Um, but I don't, I don't know what to say to those people. I don't know what to say to all that besides treat the internet like infrastructure and target it. It's, it is, and it should be taken down. Um, it's, it's a huge issue we've got going on, but I'll, I'll be talking about that on a lot of other podcasts. So like, I've constantly joked about how weird it is to have a primal archist being the one to argue for print and argue for reading. Uh, but it's kind of the state of the world and it's, it's what we've been, it's what we've been left with. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I still think it's important, obviously, because I do it, but I also don't think it's necessarily for everyone. I can understand why people get drawn to it and, and hope to be able to make an impact. Uh, but a, a, a good bit of what I'm going to be saying here shortly is going to be directed at those kinds of people. The biggest thing, like I said, that I'm looking for in the journal that I'm looking for in reading an in any kind of context is, is that central thing. Do you have a vision? Do you have a voice? Do you have an idea? Are you articulating it? It doesn't necessarily need to be a complete idea as long as you're cognizant of the fact that it's not a complete idea. You don't have to present everything as this nicely rounded out idea and with a, a complete conclusion. Um, good ideas and great ideas and great questions don't necessarily come that way. Uh, and I know even with, with John's work, with John Zerzan's work, um, you know, him and, I, him and I have talked about this kind of extensively. Uh, a lot of people saw the work he was doing about symbolic thought and about language and things like that as, as being this articulated, complete thought of saying like, well, you're, you know, that's why people can walk away from Elvin's refusal and say, John is against language. And, you know, that, that wasn't the point. I mean, there's some of it that, that was definitely directed that way and definitely directed at, at really kind of edging out these questions and really kind of pushing the, the discussion. Um, but, I mean, those those things were genuine questions he was asking, and he still continues to ask and articulate and, and draw those things out. And, I mean, the, the way that he takes it and the way I take it could be very different, but he's got a voice, he's got a vision, he's got a clear articulation of what it is that he wants to get across, and he does. Uh, so, you know, and that's that's different thing and again there's it's just another sign that there's very different ways of writing john and i write very very differently even how we approach things is very very different but you know uh 
doesn't necessarily mean that all this stuff doesn't apply to him or people that look at John's stuff and want to write like that. But I mean, the I guess the kind of thing that I'd get back to there, and I've I've told some people about this is, I, you know, if I get a random question, if I don't know who this person is, I'm, I can't tell you uh, from a, a single email or a single interaction or a few interactions who you are or what it is that you want to get across. If you just want to write because you think it'll be effective, then you know, if you've got the compulsion, you should write. Uh, but you know, just writing itself isn't going to mean that you're going to produce things that are that other people want to read. And you do got to get, you know, some stuff out there. You just got to get your feet wet. You got to get involved with it um, and really practice it. But, you know, uh, I doubt Black and Green or um, Wild Resistance, whatever form we're in, has been the place where somebody's first writing has ever been published. Uh, you know, this stuff takes work. Uh, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot to to be able to produce this kind of stuff so my first response to that is you know you're, there's there's no shortcuts that you're going to get this you're gonna have to do the work if you want to produce something that's good and i mean if you want to just produce something that's kind of like a journalistic or a um you know just a very straightforward review or a very straightforward kind of description of a of an event that happened or, or talking about, you know, kind of like action reports and things like that, you know, that's a good place to get started. That's a good place that you're going to be able to just say what you need to say and get it out there and just get your feet wet and you can work on that. And your voice in that instance can be just as simply saying, I want to tell what happened here and pass this on. That's legitimate thing. There's, there's plenty of room for it. My own writing, my own draw is more towards, uh, you know, I really like a lot of narrative nonfiction. Um, I like deep dives and I like stuff that has a narrative to it and a story to it. Uh, and I think there's always a story. Um, and I, I kind of find that constantly. And that's why I've got my, my list of books to write is extensive. Um, my, my notes that I have for myself everywhere uh, cover a whole lot of ground. Um, so the way that I approach writing is going to be driven around the idea of what is that narrative and what am I getting at? What's the point going to be? Uh, and what's the tone? A lot of my writing process comes down to the title and the first line. Uh, I feel like that sets the tone. Uh, and that's going to be kind of my biggest idea as far as how the thing unfolds. And, you know, there's, it doesn't shortcut any of the amount of work that goes into the stuff. Um, to, I get a number of people who are saying stuff to me, like are asking questions that are kind of like, well, is me writing going to be a good thing because it means I'm going to have to sit behind a computer a lot. I am, I work on this stuff anywhere from 48 to 80 hours a week. Um, how do I do it? I've got, I've got six year old daughters. Um, I do have a day job. You know, so what it means is that after my girls go to sleep uh, is when I get most of my work done. So, uh, you know, it can be 10 o'clock at night till 3 or 4 or 5 in the morning, and then the next day goes on. So really the cost of it is that I just don't really sleep. So when you're looking at a book like Cold Personality for the writing of it, I actually did all of the writing for this book within about a month. Um, and what that meant was, was that I was up until about five o'clock in the morning 
working on this probably sometimes five, six days a week, um, which is which is a bit harsher than usual. But the the compulsion to finish this book uh, was very strong. But there's about three or four months before where all I was doing was just researching. Uh, I've been working on a number of other things at the time as well, but just kind of constantly building until I found that narrative. And that came with the help of a couple of friends of mine as well who were looking at it. And, you know, it could be something as simple as somebody sending a link and seeing in this case the uh, Shipibo Konobo Sedibo uh, Union of Healers talking about spiritual extractivism. And as soon as I saw that, the whole thing came together. And that's that's the, the approach it took. Um, I have a lot of notes and outlines for for my stuff going into it. I usually have little idea until I get started about how big a thing is going to be. And almost always I undershoot or underestimate what it's going to be or how long it's going to be. For me, the the piece has a, has a point. And it's over whenever that point is made. Uh, and, it, you know, I mean, the hard part about that is, is like when you're doing this kind of work, when you're getting into this, the, like the frame I kind of have for my work is ethno-historical. So it's combining anthropology with history and ecology. Um, and so that involves a lot of these kind of deep dives and trying to tie things together uh, at every single level. And that means that you can have really insane dives to try and find those links and to try and find that narrative as again as i said it doesn't get easier and there aren't shortcuts it just means that the better you get as a writer and the more comfortable you get with these complicated complex arguments and ideas and narratives the more work you'll find for yourself so there's like one case uh in the essay gathered remains in the book gathered remains there's one paragraph in there I'm tying a couple things together and that paragraph alone um, I think I spent like a week or a week and a half on that just because I found all these different tangents and the general way that I approach my research is follow every lead um, which can be problematic as a writer because it, it can be lead to a lot of open doors and find a lot of stuff and new, new connections and things like that but at the same time it means that you can spend a couple of weeks or a couple of months trying to find links and they're not necessarily there. And you have to come back to the drawing board and start all over. Um, the goal should be as a writer is that the reader is unaware of all that work. So if you don't know that, then I have done well. If it's very obvious and it seems painful, um, well, then I guess, I don't know. It's not so good. Although being clear about your views I, I don't have a problem with that or my own take on and my reaction to the writing in of gods and country and cold personality there's a lot of stuff that's really really fucking heavy uh, really hard to deal with and i i don't hold back about uh, my visceral reaction to some of that stuff and even in, in cold you know i don't hold back on talking about my own surprise whenever uh, it comes out in the book that that ayahuasca as we know it in the Cizo traditions, to, to the degree that there are indigenous roots for it, they might only be 300 years old. Uh, and that was something that was really surprising to me, particularly because the essay hooked on a feeling that is in Gathered Remains uh, that talks about addiction and psychoactive substances. You know, it shows a lot of, um, you know, Aztec cultures and Incan cultures, 
having pretty heavy use ritualistically of psychoactive substances, things that are like uh, ayahuasca, but even harsher. So you could talk about scopolamine and datura, um, which are pretty fucking harsh. And I think even, even vice, who's one of the reasons that ayahuasca has become the thing that it is. Uh, they, I think they called, um, scopolamine, just datura, uh, the scariest drug in the world. It was, it was something like that. Uh, and it sounds pretty terrifying and you can die from it, which in, in the case of ayahuasca, you're not going to um it's a very very different kind of drug but i was surprised because they were using heavier uh, substances for ritualistic purposes that ayahuasca seemingly and at least in almost all if not most of the cases was not one of those um you know it doesn't hurt to have your own opinion on these things so um that kind of brings me to a big point so this is one of the biggest things that i do whenever I get somebody's writings or I get submitted, uh, the way that you learn to write in high school and often in college is the awful form of writing. The only, the whole point of, of presenting things the way that teachers do and professors do the idea is like, you make your, this is the case I'm going to make. These are my three points. And then this is my retelling of it. Uh, Teachers do that because they have to grade a whole bunch of papers at once. They got to read a whole bunch of essays and they want to be able to blow through them. Um, it's not a good way of presenting ideas. It's an awful way of presenting ideas. And so one of the things I do, and, and even as I've gone through for a while in this anarchy and some of my earlier stuff, I can see remnants of this, this kind of lingering. You don't have to tell me what you're going to tell me. You just have to, you just have to do it. Uh, and the more that you have that kind of like, declarative tone or or as far as you know this this kind of like i don't want to call it narration but uh this is what i'm doing this kind of like thing that pulls you out of the actual content and tells you hey this is what i'm doing um it just doesn't read well uh so you know my my whole thing is always going to come down to don't tell me you're going to tell me something just tell me and don't, don't have to tell me i just told you this uh, there's times where it works. There's times where it doesn't just say, as I had mentioned previously, or something like that. Callbacks are one thing, but just this constant, like, as I have just told you, I, I feel like 90% of the time that I see that written in something, the point wasn't actually made. It was just following some different variation of that. Tell me what you're going to tell me. Tell me the three points. And then tell me what you just told me again. Uh, kind of high school bullshit. And it's, it's like the least effective way of going about it. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, whenever I see that stuff, it's like, if you delete those parts out, you'll get a better sense of what it is you're trying to get across and what you're actually working with as far as content goes. Um, and I can get a better sense about whether or not something has got any actual give. But I, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's a common mistake and it's not people's fault. I don't blame people for it. I don't think people are being lazy if they're doing that. It's just like, that's the way you're taught in school is to write this kind of way. And and I'm sure there actually probably are people out there that like it because it makes it possible to speed read. It makes it possible to kind of go through and structurally see with the writing um, at what point you're being told or given what information and it makes it a lot easier to skim it and things like that. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, as far as it's good and readable, that that doesn't cut it. Uh, so, some basic stuff here. I'm kind of going through some notes that I had made from talking to a couple people and laying the stuff out a little bit. 
there, there is always going to be a degree of vulnerability that comes with presenting anything creative. If it's coming from you, uh, even if it is something that you have a lot of, you're, you're really presenting somebody else's work or you're presenting other people's ideas or you're presenting an idea as its own thing, how that's all formulated, how that's articulated, that's going to be coming from you. Um, most people I know who are involved in creative processes or creative anything and producing something, you know, there's a lot of depression. There's a lot of um, things that go along inside that kind of draw people to have this self-contemplative form of expression, regardless of the form it takes. Um, so what I'm getting at here is like, there's there's a lot of people like, how do you get over the idea or how, how do you get the confidence to to submit things? or to present things to the world. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say first and foremost, I, I don't know many people who don't get that overwhelming feel of dread and vulnerability as soon as they hit send on a piece. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter how long it is or how articulate it is, or even, you know, something like this podcast. It's like, as soon as I post it up, I get this sense in the morning. I was like, what the fuck did I just do? Um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm still a second guess myself all the time. Uh, so I'd say that the biggest thing is is knowing that that's just a part of the process. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll get through it. Um, and you know, by the time you've actually finished a piece and presented it, you should have gone through the motions on a lot of the stuff, uh, and just being prepared for you know go through that cycle so you're prepared for people's comments and editing and things like that. So. Um, I do write stuff and post it directly up here and there, but it's it's increasingly less common. I've been more and more holding to uh, having a handful of people I know that are editors that I trust a lot uh, and do really good and uh, going through this kind of process instead of what had happened many times in terms of the stuff that got into Wildness Anarchy or even Species Trader and Green Anarchy, which would be you know, there's just this overwhelming sense of urgency. You just got to write this piece, get it out, and have it out as fast as you possibly can. Um, and just, you know, as soon as it's done, it's done, and that's it. And maybe you have a couple people look over it, or maybe not. But, you know, like with uh, this this pamphlet discussing daily life, it's in for wildness and anarchy, uh, and it's been a it's been very widely read as far as my stuff goes. Uh, particularly back and I wrote it, I think it was 2000, 2001. Um, I wrote the thing in two nights on my last day of work before putting everything I had in storage and going to live on the road for, I don't know, four or five, six months or something like that. Um, so it was like, get it in, get it done as fast as you possibly can, get scan a bunch of copies of it and then get it out there. Uh, and back then, you know, that was a very effective way to get a couple thousand copies out very quickly it was just get it out go travel around and give it to people get there was distros at the time there was a lot bigger network that we had where things would get distributed in uh and a lot easier to do, do things like scam copies um so it was it was easier to get stuff out but it also meant that i had a master copy of it that had things scratched out and then written back in constantly making edits on the master like that and uh you know, that's, I haven't written like that in a while. Um, 
and it's got its place. And, and again, it's a, it, I think it's easier for me to kind of qualify that stuff as saying it was very raw. And it was, and I'd never write another pamphlet like that again. Um, but there's still some staying power to it, and I, I want to be respectful of it as, as I go through. But, I mean, I you know, I look at something like that, it's like, yeah, I would have done it much differently as far as writing, as far as content. Um, but that's also why it stays in, because it, it does reflect that. It does reflect a certain period. It does reflect a certain kind of mood. And it's not that things are incorrect. It's just the way it was articulated was was very specific at that time. Um, but again, as I mentioned, the way I do things now is, is considerably different. Having a, a bunch of people edit and weigh in on stuff, uh, is a part of that. And even sending that, even sending that stuff to editors and people that I know and trust, you still get that sense of dread and vulnerability. Um, but the biggest thing I have is just ultimately what all of it is going to come down to is confidence in the material. Um, I never had issues with things like doing talks. I never had issues with, with getting up in front of people and talking about this stuff or dealing with it or presenting it um, in the sense that I I do a lot of research. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a very kind of pessimistic approach to the world that I think is kind of innate. Um, and it makes me very critical of things and it puts myself to a pretty ridiculous degree of scrutiny. Um, and in some ways that's a good thing. And I think in terms of writing, that can be a good thing. So usually I've run myself through a pretty massive gauntlet before I'm willing to present any idea to the world at large before I'm willing to do a podcast or interview or, uh, writing or anything like that. It's like, you know, I've, I've done my homework. Um, so, if I'm presenting the material, if I have confidence in it, then I, I don't have a lot of those kind of holdups as far as like, you know, how, how am I going to deal with this or how is this going to look? It's like by the time I get to that point, I already, I already know the argument. I already know what I'm going to say. It's going to be, as far as the presentation goes, there's a whole other part of the research and a whole other part of the writing process that deals with that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think, I think confidence in the material is the biggest thing, which is why... You know, when people are saying, should I write? It's like, well, what are you planning on writing? Uh, are you just writing to write? Do you think that you're just going to kind of like flop this stuff out or whatever? If if myself or, or some other writer or some other anarchist makes this stuff look easy necessarily, it doesn't mean that it is. So it doesn't mean that you're just going to sit down and write something and it's going to be coherent or it's going to be good um, or anything. And it, it might be, um, but it doesn't, you know, nothing's a given in this world. It's just kind of what it comes down to so do your homework, know what it is that you want to say. Uh, and for me, that's very extensive research. And I'll, I'll say to like, uh, in my writing desk here, I have, um, copies of all my books, plus the newest issues of black green interview and wild resistance. Uh, I do that because I am very hard on myself about, uh, recycling any references or pull quotes. I've done it on blog posts and things like that. Uh, but it, as far as writing goes, I really don't like reusing any kind of uh, source. It's not that I won't use the same book, but I don't want to use the same argument or the same quotes if I have to. Um, it leads to kind of a different thing. And I think I'll get to, I'll, I'll probably put a writing up on the, on the uh, kevintucker.org, the website soon. But a lot of my writing does kind of dovetail one thing to another. So, Cole is an extension of 
the essay Hooked on a Feeling, and then it's also an offshoot of Of Gods and Country. Um, the way that I approach things can overlap in varying degrees, and you know, the essays Hooked on a Feeling and Society Without Strangers work together pretty considerably. So I want to make sure that if I'm going to overview some of the material that's in one thing and another, I don't want to get to the point where people are going to be reading both these things and be like, I don't want to read this because I just read it. Or I don't want to see the same quote because it's just, I just read this other essay. Like when you take it out of the context of being into uh, issues of black and green review, and then you put it in a book like gathered remains and these essays are back to back. I don't want to tell you the same thing two times in a row. So if I'm going to use references from the research of one essay to the next, then I at least want to present it in a different way or I want to try and present it um, like if there's going to be a quote or something like that, that it'll be a different quote than what I'd use. I never want to get to the point where like kind of the worst case scenario for this is Derek Jensen, uh, who famously quotes himself all the time and even has gone so far as to quote entire chapters of himself in consecutive books, which I think most people look at and say like, that's fucking nuts like if you're gonna read those books back to back and you read the same chapter twice it's like oh yeah you're just you're just not a good writer that's what that comes down to you're just or you're just very full of yourself and you think that that's that's an okay thing to do um and yeah i don't i don't quote myself uh that's never something i'm gonna be interested in but uh that is important to me um and i do keep a lot of notes and i do keep my notes between essays and between books so I can make sure that I'm, I'm not using the same quote and I'm not saying it's never happened. Um, I just try really hard to make sure that, that I don't and that I don't cover the exact same ground, which gets harder again because, you know, as I go from writing shorter essays to longer books, it, it does get complicated. There are going to be times where you're going to have to go through the same argument. That's something that, you know, requires a lot of thought. And I do put a lot of thought into the writing and the presentation. Uh, but a lot of time goes into the research. There's just no way to shortcut it. Uh, I go through people's bibliographies. I go through different notes. I go through obscure academic journals, kind of constantly researching. And I've got a couple of friends who are better at research than I am. And I'll, I'll have to ask every now and then if they can help me find uh, a couple articles or something like that. Um, and then, yeah, just have to do a fuck ton of reading. And I guess that's one of the other things too, that makes me kind of more critical about my own writing processes and about the way that I approach things is I'm consolidating and rearticulating information from some of the worst writing in the world, which is often technical writing in terms of anthropology, in terms of history, in terms of uh, the worst of it is the, the biological scientific kind of stuff. Um, that stuff is hell to get through. Uh, but trying to take all this stuff that is, that is particularly, you know, can be badly written or hard to approach and turning it into this larger argument and then presenting it in a way that is very readable. Um, my process on all that has changed considerably. I've always been an extensive note taker, but, uh, you know, I'm not in my twenties anymore. Uh, and I you know, I don't have the recall that I, I did. And I used to be much better about this. And it's been, it was something that was hard for me to even kind of cope with. But uh, becoming a parent and having a lot less time to, to work on things and needing to make more of it. But also 
Um, I have very advanced staged lines uh, in of all the bands. I've been riddled with lines. Uh, so it means that my recall can not can be not as good. Uh, it's not that my memory is bad or anything like that. It's just that like before I could remember a book name, author's name, page number, I could remember entire, I just memorized references all the time. Uh, and so my note taking was more reflective of that kind of recall. Uh, and that just doesn't work anymore. So I've, I've changed the way that I take notes. I even changed the way that I read books and take notes and, um, I mark up my books considerably more than I used to. It used to be enough just to have a dog ear on a page and I'd remember what part that was. But, you know, I guess part of that comes with aging and part of it is just coping. Um, but it makes things a lot easier for me now how I do take notes. And, and then um, I've got stacks of sheets that I print out uh, that are all my pull quotes and references uh, and then I, I kind of go through and make very extensive notes and all that. Um, I, I feel like I, I kind of had to make that change in order to really get back into writing again, um, which was probably something I noticed around like 2012 to 2014. Uh, and one of the reasons I've written a fuck ton more in that period than, than the previous. I mean, I've been anarchist since 1993. So all previous periods combined have just written a ton more. Uh, and part of it has to do with just really needing to be more articulate and needing to make things easier on myself to just jump in and get behind it. Um, and as far as my own approach goes as well, uh, like I said, I, I see my writing uh, or the way that I present things, the way that I do things about trying to condense this really hefty information and just something that's ultimately digestible and this idea i've always had in my head and it was a quote i heard at some point and i honestly don't know how true it is i heard that people retain about five to fifteen percent of a book after they read it so i've realized it's a very limited i mean that's a tiny amount um for the amount of work that's being done so i do think a lot about presentation i do think a lot about the argument and the narration and the pacing um and the idea is if you're going to have this minor thing to try and tilt the story arc, uh, and this, you know, I'm talking about nonfiction, but I, I do talk about it in this way, to tilt the story arc so that the main takeaway, if it's going to be in that 5 to 10% range, you can seed as much information in that as you possibly can. And ideally, if you can make there, make a, a, a kind of help a visceral reaction to the writing and to that information, then that'll up the chances that people are going to walk away with more or be impacted more enough that they're going to come back to it or they're going to uh, want to look into it further. And then, you know, if somebody's going to read one book and then five to ten five to fifteen percent of that, and then you get them to read five or six books, it's a lot more information to retain or a lot more information to carry on. That's why I'm big on recommending books. Uh, I I want to take as much or make as much as I possibly can of the time I'm given with any particular audience at all and seed it as much as I possibly can. I don't know if the podcast is the best articulation of it, but the podcast is me just talking. I barely ever have notes. and Sometimes I'll have a some dog-eared or something like that, but this is just me winging it. 
when I'm writing. It's a very, very different process. Very, very different. Um, so let's see. Uh, best advice I've ever gotten. Don't read the comments. Uh, internet is just a shit heap. Uh, it's a dumpster fire. Don't read the comments. Uh, who cares? That doesn't mean don't take critiques. That doesn't mean don't seek out people's opinions, even if they're not ones that you necessarily wanted to get. And I, I, I've warned people all the time that, you know, sometimes there will be a writer that you really respect um, and you want to send their stuff and they'll send you something that's just like, oh, this is great. Uh, just kind of like this generic kind of accolade. And that stuff can feel good, especially if you're getting started. Um, but there's also a good chance that they just didn't read it or they just kind of like cruised over it or that, you know, they saw themselves being referenced in it and it made them feel stoked. So they're just like uncritically like, oh, this looks great. This is awesome. Thank you. Um, you know, like I said, that stuff can feel good at a certain point, but it's it's not helpful to you as a writer necessarily. Um but it doesn't also mean that sometimes people read it and feel that way sincerely uh, and they're just being short because it's an email or whatever or it's a conversation or it's just a, you know, you're walking up to them at an event or something. Um, but I would say in general, be cautious of the overblown accolade uh, or just kind of like flat, like, oh, it's great. Um, but get feedback from people that you know and trust. Uh, and get feedback too from people who, if you don't know them or anything, if they, if they have shown that they understand the subject matter, they understand the content, they've done the research themselves. If they show that they know what they're talking about in their, in their arguments, take that seriously. Uh, and often, you know, if I if I know people who've done research and I know people aren't going to necessarily agree with me, I will seek them out in an earlier stage of editing uh, or I will present ideas to them while I'm doing research and writing and bounce it off. And I, I never want to be dishonest in writing and that's something that I take very seriously. Um, you know, I hold myself to a very high level of scrutiny as far as content goes and as far as re references go and as far as citations go. Um, I take that stuff very seriously. Uh, so that does mean, like, you know, if, if you think something is kind of questionable, then check it out. Don't don't let, you know, the thousandth reader be the one to tell you, hey, you got this thing wrong and it was demonstrably untrue. It's not to say that over time you won't find things or that research won't come out or research that you were unaware of will come out that, that, that disproves something. Um, but, you know, just go into knowing that there's there's always going to be that chance. You know, don't, don't let your idea of what the truth should be dictate the direction that your research goes and don't just try and validate it. Uh, you know, and it doesn't mean you need to draw out every contrary point in an argument. But you need to be aware of them because somebody's gonna somebody somebody's always going to know more than you, uh, and they're always going to be able to present that to you. So you, you should be able to articulate that. You should be able to argue. Um, I'd say a big part of my writing process and um, my patterns in terms of how I how I've gone the path that I have did come down to getting in a lot of arguments. I used to get in a lot of arguments, um, not so much anymore, just because I. You know, it's not the most effective use of my time. Uh, and you see patterns in a lot of arguments that they could go on forever and they, they lead nowhere. If it's not doing anything, it's not doing anything. Um, but, uh, you know, don't let Facebook be the thing where that happens. Because Facebook is just the most insane 
kind of pretext for discussion uh, where you're going to be arguing with somebody. You could have this really intense, massive thread going on where you're arguing with a couple people who really know what they're talking about. And all of a sudden this person's uncle or aunt or somebody just saw the second or like the 200th comment and they've got an opinion now. And so now you're talking about the distraction they're seeing because they weren't, they've seen the entire thread, but nobody gives a fuck and they're not going to read the whole thing. So, you know, you get this weird curveball thrown in. It's not that that argument that doesn't happen in real life, but it's not a realistic expectation for how a discussion goes. Uh, and so it's not going to be good for really advancing the arguments. It just kind of encourages this knee-jerk reactionism, uh, which isn't conducive to critical thinking. Uh, but you should still get in conversations with people. Uh, in web forums, you know, I, I used to argue on a lot of them. Uh, but that was, that was 19 years ago. I mean, it was up to 17 years ago, whatever, really. Uh, so some of these arguments that would happen between me and like the, uh, uh, insurrectionary anarchists or sometimes would eventually be called small, they used to call themselves small C communists and things like that. Uh, killing King Abacus, Wolfie, uh, venomous butterfly, all those kinds of people we used to argue a lot, but we would argue on a forum and we're using, you know, free dial-up service. You get a CD in the mail or something like that and last for three or four weeks or something like that. And you toss and you get a new one. Um, when I was having those arguments, you know, it was sign on dial-up modem, read what people were writing or like open it up. And then you write a response offline and then you get back on and then you wait the 20 minutes it takes for you to upload the thing you're doing. So, I mean, that's pretty different than always on internet. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, can, I'm not saying that forums are necessarily a better place to go for that kind of thing. I'm just saying my experience of them at, at a formative time was a very different one. Uh, let's see how that goes to whatever. Uh, overthinking everything, um, is a bad way to put it because I do overthink everything. Um, but I think that trying to put yourself in other people's positions necessarily and presume how they might see it overthinking how people might react to a piece that's counterproductive but pieces should have planning uh, you know think about what you want to say and how you want to articulate it like i said the best idea in the world doesn't do much if it's just flopped out and that's that if you expect the content to do the work for you uh, unless you're doing a very, very straightforward kind of thing, it's just not going to. Uh, and there's been a lot of cases where I'll see something like a book that is really exciting. Or I read a book and I got a whole lot from it. And I'm just like, I can't recommend this to other people because it was just awful and terrible, terrible to get through. And with an anthropology, there is a lot of that stuff. I will not, I can't just go and recommend to people, hey, you should go read these two, th- these essays or this book because a lot of times it's, it's written in a, atrocious way and you have to be driven by the content alone to get through it uh so if i'm telling people or giving people advice or how i'm writing that's not what i want to be that's not the kind of writer i want to be that's not the way i want to present things um a big thing for me is not being afraid to start over or delete um i have notes like i said i have notes everywhere um i also have false or failed starts to essays 
that just weren't going. And I'll know usually at this point, I'll know uh, within a couple hundred words if the approach I'm taking is going to work or not. And, you know, all, all the stuff I'm writing, I mean, that that's true for that stuff. I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't remember the last time I've shared something with other people or editors that I ended up ditching. Um, but I go through that process with myself. I, I will delete a lot of stuff. Um, I'm not really afraid to do that. And if it's just not working, going to that, or even just looking at uh, a writing that's not working and I'll, I'll actually do something where if I think that there's a part that's really rough, print it out and then go through each paragraph and say, this is the point that this paragraph's making. This is the point that this paragraph's making. And then don't be afraid to just salvage all of that go through and see if you can condense and articulate everything differently or in a way that makes more sense than what you what you had been kind of meandering with um, and don't be afraid to tear it apart or just reorganize huge sections uh, move things around if it's not working it's not going to work don't don't put it out and let somebody else tell you if you're going to look at it and it's not working then redo it or just, you know, let it sit, come back to it. Uh, letting it sit is actually a pretty good piece of advice. Like I said, a lot of the stuff I'd written before was just like, get it out as fast as you possibly can, get it through the process as, as, as quick as you can. And that, that doesn't always work. Um, I was very fortunate with a group of editors that I had to help me with cold personality because it was a very timely book. And like I said, I, I spent about three or four months doing specific research for that book, wrote it in a month, and edited it in a month. Uh, and in that process, though, I think I read it start to finish like seven times, which is a lot, a lot more than I would normally do. Um, but, you know, I wanted to get it as tight as I possibly could and get it out as fast as I could without shortcutting anything. Um yeah, I guess uh, taking notes. That's a, that's a big thing for me as well. As I mentioned, it, it's helped. I, I feel like I was kind of forced to do that, but I think at the same time, that was a really good move, a really good choice for me to, to be much more articulate of, within my own note-taking so that I could make it easier on myself when I'm, when I'm doing things like when I'm doing these deep dive kind of pieces and you get that, you get that thought is like, okay, I think there's a connection I can make at this point. Um, and how do I go back? What book did I get this idea from being able to go back very easily and find an idea or find a, a topic or find something you found really important, even if you didn't know necessarily what you're going to do with it at the time that you had read it. So I've got a lot of notes that are kind of constantly floating around. And also uh, if an idea strikes you, like I, I write it down, I've got, like in my car, I'd always have these envelopes, like junk mail, and then these long passages on it. Um, I mentioned that titles and first lines are a big part for me. So that's because it sets the tone, but the narrative arc is another part of it. So a lot of the ideas I'll get when I'm around are the narrative arc parts. So it's like kind of the point I want to make with a particular amount of piece of research or something that I'm going to be presenting. Uh, so I'll just write that down and then, you know, either it goes into a piece or it doesn't. Uh, but if you've got it in your mind, 
and it's a crucial part of how the story is being told or a crucial part of the story that you're telling, I don't trust that to memory. Uh, you know, I'd even tell that to my 20 year old self. Like I got all these great ideas when I'd be working these 10 hour, 12 hour shifts. Uh, I have all these awesome ideas. And then as soon as you get home, your brain resets. And it's like, Oh shit. Um, didn't matter how great the idea was sometimes like day to day life can just wipe it out. Um, but yeah, um, I think that's really kind of the main stuff I want to get across. And like I said, I thought this was going to be kind of shorter and, you know, kind of proving the point that I'm trying to make here. You don't always know how it's going to go. And I have a lot of thoughts on this stuff and this might be a bit more meandering and a little more unfilled than usual, but it's just because this isn't the kind of stuff I'm used to talking about, even if it is the stuff that I think about all the time. Uh, I will say one more thing is like people asking me as well, how do you get things published? I'm probably going to be doing things differently with a lot of my writing going forward. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get into that a whole lot, but the way that I do things with black and green, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that necessarily works even for black and green, much less for people who just want to get started and, the model of it is based off of how anarchists had always done things. It's, it was never, it would have never been considered self-publishing. Uh, that's kind of a, a more recent thing, I think in a lot of ways. And, and the internet's made it more of its own thing. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for a group of anarchists to start their own press and print their own books. Now it's self-publishing. It's looked at very differently. Uh, but the way that books are, are, promoted and the way that books or even information about books is spread out now is very very different than it was even 10 years ago and definitely 20 years ago and i'm sure much differently than 30 40 50 years ago and the, the networks are different now it's a lot harder to get your books out there and it's a lot harder to get people to read beyond headlines when it comes to sharing information uh so how how things work with black and green is that it's, it's always been predicated, and I've been doing Black and Green for, since 2000. Uh, it was really just predicated on the idea that I just made it work. Uh, and as I've, I've been kind of saying in the podcast throughout, and I've, I've put up more often, I put on the mailing list, you know, asking people to help support, uh, that's, that's a really crucial thing because the networks for spreading the information, the networks for making people aware of the books, are largely gone. There's not many anarchist journals out there. There's not a whole lot of journals that are doing reviews out there. There's not even a lot of blogs going out there. So people will just like post something on their social media and then it's said and done. Uh, you know, you could do the greatest interview with the world the podcast and within an episode or two, then it's just old content and people aren't as interested in it. So that's so hard. Um, which is why I ask people to do reviews of the books and do reviews of the podcast and get that out there because those those networks are gone and it's hard to get people to realize that they should pay attention. And that, you know, if I did a podcast a year ago, it doesn't necessarily mean that the content is dated um, at all. And it's like the way that we do the journal, it's, it's built around the idea that this stuff is going to be permanent. That's why it's not a magazine. It's not meant to just be reacting to current news it's about how these things tie into larger processes and history into living history you know it's a different way of of interacting with the world and interacting with 
with the research and the content and the presentation. So that stuff matters, but uh, there's, there's again, there's no shortcut in how to do this stuff. Black and Green right now has a lot of debt and it's kind of a, it can feel pretty insurmountable and it's been a problem. Uh, and it's also one of the things that's, you know, I got to deal with getting that debt down before, for a while, the Sanarchy goes to print, the second edition goes to print. And I'll probably end up doing another crowdfunding campaign and I'm open to suggestions for how to raise up more money for it. But Black and Green needs to get a considerable amount of money paid down before that can happen. Uh, and preferably sooner than later. But again, it's just like doing the work. Like I said, I'd, I'd probably spend 40, 80 hours a week in research and writing uh, and doing the black and green stuff. Uh, the way that it had worked for a long time is that I just worked a lot. I take shit jobs. I can work 50, 80 hours a week or something like that. As I mentioned with the limes stuff, uh, it can impact my recall, but it definitely impacts me physically. Uh, and, uh, at this point, you know, I walk with a cane, uh, and I'm generally in pretty considerable pain. So I, I can't, I just can't take shit jobs anymore, uh, which is hard in a lot of ways, but also because I can't just take a shit job and work another 30, 40 hours a week and pay down Black and Green's debt. Um, so what that means for it all, I mean, it's hard to say. I'm never going to stop doing the work. It's never going to happen. I'm going to constantly do this. This is a compulsion uh, and like I said, it's not, I don't, I don't have a need to just do the writing. I have things that need to come out. There's a purpose behind what I'm doing. Um, and that, that list is backlogged <laughs> pretty considerably. I'm going to be writing books till I'm dead. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing it. I'm trying to think of other ways to, to get it out there and to offset some of the workload of trying to do the promotion and trying to get all the stuff out there. Uh, but as far as, you know, people who want to get started with writing and get started with self-publishing or get started with getting their work out there, I, I will say in a lot of ways, there's there's very rare instances in the anarchist world where you can say that the way things had been done is just not going to work anymore uh, in terms of presentation, not in terms of arguments. I mean, that stuff's always going to change. Uh, but, you know, doing a zine, um, doing a book, it's it's changing and the internet is changing that stuff. And I, I don't know that I necessarily have answers for it. And I could certainly say right now, I, I wouldn't say that I do. Uh, but for me, this stuff is force a habit. This is just the way we, the way we do it. And I think in a world that is being overrun by social media and the, the insanity of social media, a book is a, a different kind of engagement an off screen engagement uh, that I think is very crucial are very important and a much different reality and much different experience with the information than you're going to get by just posting up pieces and people reading the headline and maybe a couple paragraphs or maybe power skimming it or even worse going to some of these websites where they show where parts have been highlighted. Uh, you know, I just, I don't like reading online. Um, so that's, that's another part of the question. How does this stuff happen? How do you do it? And for me, it's just been a willingness to continue doing it and continue kind of backing it as much as I can. Um, and I have had very great donors in the past. Uh, and that's been a massive help, and I can't understate it. Uh, but the biggest thing was just, yeah, being able to 
are being unafraid to take on the the debt that comes with these kind of projects because black and green most certainly does not make money. Uh, the ideas that people get about books making money and things like that, it's really predicated, again, off that whole ghostwriting industry where there's, you know, every person that gets kicked out of or jumps out of the Trump campaign or something like that or the Trump world will get a million-dollar book contract. Uh, the way that black and green works as a business is ridiculous. Uh, the books cost a lot of money to make. They cost a lot of money to mail. Like, basically, if I sell an entire print run, the best case scenario is that I can pay for doing two more books. Uh, but if people have been following black and green publications, and if you listen to the podcast, I hope that you will, you'll also notice that they grow in size every year. So it's kind of a, as far as a long-term business model, uh, it's not a particularly good one. If every book is longer than the last one, then it just means I put out one book, I'll put out another in the best case scenario. Uh, but things don't always go by the best case scenario. So really what it means is there's a lot of debt, which means that if you can contribute, if you can donate, it goes a very long way. And on the webpage, there's a support button. Uh, and you can donate via Patreon. You can donate via PayPal. Um, and also on Venmo now, at, uh, black and green, just black and green uh, at Venmo. Uh, but, you know, if you want to stick check in the mail or something like that, that works too. Payable to Kevin Tucker. Black Green is not a business. Um, yeah, so just keeping those things going. And that, that is a part of it too. And for me, as a person who does the layout and the publishing for all the stuff for Black and Green, I do have a very visual sense about what it is that I want to do and how things are presented. That does factor into my writing and the way that I work on things, but that isn't going to be a factor for a lot of people. So it's a whole other discussion that does not necessarily need to happen. But if people have more questions about it, you can certainly send them to me. If people have questions that they have for me that they want me to read as a letter on the on the podcast, um, whenever you write those letters, just let me know. Gener in general, I try to respond to people's questions on the podcast. Um, but I, I don't know if I've ever actually read a question. Uh, or read somebody's email or something like that. If you were expecting me to, then just mention in the email that that's your idea. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I'll do podcast length answers to your questions. Uh, but if people have other thoughts about it, if there are questions or anything like that, certainly feel free to write me. Uh, sometimes I'm much better about getting back to people than others. I try to uh, put you know, an appropriate amount of time and energy into it. But uh, if I'm knee deep in a project and I'm heads down in it, then yeah, there's times where I can take a couple months to kind of digging out my email again. If that's the case, you can send me another email and just say, hey, I wrote you. Can you get back to me? Um, that said, the email address for is uh, blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you're interested in my writings, kevintucker.org is where I have all of them. And then blackandgreenpress.org is a page that really needs an update. But all the books are for sale at the blackandgreenreview.org webpage. There's backslash shop. There's purchase tab on top. That's where all the books are. So purchasing the books goes a very long way. Uh, the journal is Wild Resistance. Uh, and the website for that is wildresistance.org. Issue number seven has a lot of really awesome stuff lined up for it. 
uh, which I'll talk about further. I don't like discussing things until I actually can tell you for certain that they're in the works. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's going to be really awesome in that issue. The deadline is September 1st. Uh, and on the Wild Resistance page, there's a bit more about submissions. Uh, and uh, for this podcast, primalanarchy.org has all of the previous episodes. Uh, so you can check them out there. And Primal Anarchy Podcast is part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Uh, just look up Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. It's on every all the platforms and everything. And it has its own website and a player. You can hear this and all the other podcasts from that channel. Uh, so with that, I'm going to close it off. Thank you for listening. Uh, I talked a lot more than I planned on, which is pretty usual. But this is uh, a bit more of me talking about my thinking and writing process than um, I would have ever thought I would have gotten into. Uh, thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time.